0: I'm Alejandro Soto,
1: and I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, February 28th, 2017.
0: Coming up today, we speak with Dr. Claire Raftery from the National Solar Observatory. She will talk to us about the total solar eclipse in North America this summer, along with other physics topics.
1: We begin with a look at some of the recent news in
0: science. Exoplanets are planets that orbit stars around our solar system. Since the first discovery of exoplanets two decades ago, astronomers have been searching for Earth-sized exoplanets that may be habitable. Based on the current understanding of life on Earth, an exoplanet may be habitable if its surface and or subsurface can sustain liquid water. This is the simplest definition of a habitable exoplanet, but not the only definition. Creating a definition for habitable exoplanet is a tricky task that depends on the type of star, the size of the exoplanet, its elemental makeup, and other parameters. Despite this, astronomers keep looking for candidate habitable exoplanets. Last week, potentially habitable exoplanets were discovered. NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope team announced the discovery of seven Earth-sized planets orbiting a star that's 40 light-years away, which is nearby by astronomical standards. Astronomers call this nearby star TRAPPIST, and a telescope in Chile had previously identified two exoplanets around TRAPPIST. Now, NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope has confirmed the existence of these two exoplanets and has found five more. According to NASA, all seven of these exoplanets could have liquid water, given the right atmospheric conditions, and three are candidates for being habitable. Astronomers will continue to monitor Trappist seven exoplanets to learn more about their surfaces and atmospheres. This will greatly enhance our understanding of potentially habitable exoplanets and the likelihood of discovering life elsewhere in the
1: universe. Some parrots can say hundreds of words and even converse with humans. Dogs eh, sometimes try. Primates readily learn sign language, but no non-human primate has ever been trained to speak human using sounds, not even chimpanzees raised from birth in human homes. As for why, scientists have two hypotheses. The first, neural, hypothesis is that other primates lack the brain mechanisms required for human speech. Darwin favored this hypothesis, and it was widely accepted until the 1960s. The second, or peripheral, hypothesis blames a limitation in vocal tract anatomy. This hypothesis is widely accepted today, or at least it was until last week. In a study published last week in the journal Science, researchers used dynamic X-ray videos to display tongue and throat tract dynamics in macaque monkeys during vocalization. Dynamic x-ray videos consist of a series of x-ray pictures, each of which makes a single frame of a motion picture. These frames can be played back at various speeds, just like a video can be slowed down or sped up, to provide insight into the movement of the monkey's tongue and throat. The results of the study showed that the monkeys could easily produce the range of sounds required for speech. Their findings suggest that the neural hypothesis is the reason that we won't be hearing monkeys speak human anytime soon.
0: Over the past two decades, scientists have studied how climate change might affect the Colorado River. Most caution that future warming of the climate will lead to net depletion of water flow. Nonetheless, the latest U.S. government assessment has stated that little or no change in Colorado river flow is expected because precipitation increases due to climate warming are likely to outweigh evaporation increases due to climate warming. Last week, scientists provided more data that contradicts the U.S. government assessment. Brad Udall of Colorado State University and Jonathan Overpeck of the University of Arizona reported an analysis of temperature, precipitation, and water volume in the Colorado River Basin from 2000 to 2014 and compare this to historical data from the 20th century. They point out that in the first 15 years of this century, the climate warmed. At the same time, Colorado river flow declined. Udall and Overpeck conclude that the decrease in river flow is due predominantly to increased evaporation caused by higher temperatures. Thus, warming has increased evaporation faster than precipitation. Should this relationship continue, future climate warming will lead to even lower flow rates for the Colorado River. These results were reported in last week's issue of Water Resources Research. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Alejandro Soto. Today we're speaking with Dr. Claire Raftery, Director of Education and Outreach at the National Solar Observatory, which is based here in Boulder. Dr. Raftery has studied the extreme ultraviolet and x-ray spectroscopy of the sun, has worked on education and public outreach for NASA's MAVEN mission to Mars, and is now lead education and public outreach at the National Solar Observatory. Today, she will talk to us about solar physics, and especially the upcoming solar eclipse that will be visible in America this summer. Dr. Raftery, welcome to How on Earth.
2: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: So, we have this upcoming eclipse. It's a total solar eclipse, and it's uh, passing through North America, so it's going to be uh, viewable by Americans. Let's just start with some basics. You know, what makes eclipses so exciting, and what's particularly special about a total solar eclipse?
2: uh <clears throat> what makes eclipses so exciting is um well how about if it became nighttime right in the middle of the day for well not for no, no apparent reason but uh because of the just of the alignments of the earth sun and moon it it takes something that is uh very literally out of this world and it makes it very very real so um Unfortunately, I personally haven't seen a total solar eclipse yet, but I'm very much looking forward to this one. But I have been very active in getting uh, getting ready for this year's solar eclipse, and I've heard lots of anecdotes from people uh, regarding things like the animals' behavior. So animals think it's the the, the middle of the night again. So the uh, during the the uh, total solar eclipse that we're going to have this year, um, it's going to be early in the day. So it'll start at. Uh, Totality starts at about 10 a.m. on the West Coast and it will finish just after noon on the East Coast. Here in Boulder, the peak time will be uh, at 11.46. Um, so the animals will just have woken up. It'll just be just a little bit after sunrise and then they'll think it's nighttime again. And I, I've heard that it, they, they, be, they behave as if they're going back to sleep again. The birds behave very strangely. So you have a nighttime event that happens right in the middle of the day, not long after daybreak.
0: In and- So you mentioned that um, we'll be able to see it here in Boulder at 1140 a.m., 1146 a.m., uh, what day is this going to take place? This is August 21st, uh,
2: 2017, which is a Monday and unfortunately likely to be the first day of school for, for the Boulder school districts. It's important to know that we won't see a total solar eclipse here in Boulder. Um, we are very unfortunately, we're about an hour south of the path of totality. We'll we'll get an eclipse, a partial eclipse of 93%. So that means that 7% of the sun's surface will still be visible Even at the peak time here in Boulder. So if you really want to go and see totality, the closest point to us is in Wyoming. Um, You can drive north to Wheatland, Wyoming. It's about 170 miles north from here. Um, And I personally strongly encourage you to do so. I think that I've heard it described as the difference between hearing a four-year-old sing along to the television or standing on the stage in the middle of a concert, going from seeing any level of partial eclipse to seeing the full total
0: eclipse. Wow! And so it's a it's a path that's stretching across uh, Wyoming. The closest one is in we- uh, closest to the Boulder area is in Wheatland, and then it stretches. It, it keeps going through Nebraska and heads straight across. Uh, to somewhere in the East Coast is where it ends in the U.S. Yep. Yeah,
2: so it starts in Oregon. Uh, Salem, Oregon, is the first contact on the continental U.S., and it stretches. If you drew a straight line from Oregon all the way through to South Carolina, um, the, that's the the path of totality. So it's 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 reasonably narrow, um, but there there's expected to be millions of people who have the chance to see this totality, mostly because people are going to travel to the path in order to see it on this day.
0: So. I know lots of people are already getting excited, and not just um, my fellow scientists at the office. And I think part of the reason is I don't remember uh, in my lifetime a total solar eclipse in the U.S. So how frequently do these... do these eclipses take place? The last, uh, the last eclipse, the last total
2: solar eclipse that we had in the U.S. was back in the 70s, in uh, 1970. Um, and so they, the eclipses, total solar eclipses actually happen very frequently. They happen about every 18 months. Um, but they usually happen in very inconvenient places, so in the middle of the ocean or in a very remote area. So the last time we had a total solar eclipse that passed over the continental U.S. was 1970.
0: Okay. So I get excited about this. I want to go out and see the eclipse, but I vaguely remember that it's dangerous to look at the sun normally and even, um, equally or m- possibly more dangerous during an eclipse. So what is the right way for people to try to, uh, view the eclipse?
2: Uh, so yes, it's not a good idea to look directly at the sun. Um, uh, there are a few things that you can do during a solar eclipse so there's there's two things that I want to talk about so first of all let's say we were looking at the eclipse from here in Boulder and um, we're going to see we're we're always going to see at least a little sliver of the sun's surface which means that we have to use eye protection all the time so there's a few different options you can get yourself some eclipse glasses and um, I know at NSO we're going to be placing a very large order so hopefully we can give them away to a lot of people and um, there's a lot of different organizations that are giving eclipse glasses away so if you can get yourself in a a situation where you have access to some of those that would be great you can also purchase them online but i would caution you to make sure that the glasses you purchase are safety proof that they have the the uh the right requirements. So the the two companies that we have seen vetted over and over uh, are American Paper Optics and Rainbow Symphony. Uh, so you can order straight off their website, um, and their glasses are just they, they they meet the the standards needed. So the unusual thing about eclipse glasses is when you put them on, you might think they're broken because you see absolutely nothing. It lets no light through. Uh, however, if you're to look at the sun using eclipse glasses, then those uh, that then the, the the only light that gets through is a very small amount of light from the sun so that's what makes them safe they basically filter out almost all of the photons coming from anywhere whether it's street lights or or the sunlight Um, the nice thing about eclipse glasses is that you can use them not during an eclipse so a few years ago we had a uh, what we call um a uh Oh, I can't remember the, t- the the term that we use for it now. We had a sunspot that was large enough to view with our with human eyes. We didn't need a telescope to see it. That's how enormous it was versus yeah. the size of the sun. And so we were able to pull out some eclipse glasses and use them to look at the the sunspot in in real time, just standing outside looking at the sun, because you can't do that just using your regularize or you'll do yourself some serious damage. It's also really important to know that sunglasses are not good enough. So I think that there's some misconceptions that well I have, you know, I have polarized polarized sunglasses or I have really dark sunglasses and they do me well on, on a really bright day, but they they won't do you any good on a on an eclipse day, not if you actually want to look at the sun. So getting your hands on some eclipse glasses is the in my opinion, probably the best thing to do. It might also be somewhat challenging. Um, So some alternatives, uh, welders glasses can also be, a welders mask can also be an alternative. Uh, You can make yourself a pinhole viewer, which is actually super easy to do. we we made these actually at the weekend with a group of middle school girls and they thought it was a doddle. Um, and so they're, they're an eclipse pinhole viewer is basically a piece of card. You cut a small square in, or cut, cut a small hole of some size in the middle of the card, put some aluminum foil over the hole take a drawing pin and just pierce a little little small hole in the middle of the aluminum foil and then rather than using that to look through with your eye what you do is hold the piece of card up towards the sun and allow the sunlight to shine through the hole and project it onto another piece of card so you never put your face in front of the hole because that's uh, that's basically funneling that light straight into your eye you want to have it projected onto another piece of card and you can actually track the eclipse uh, that, that way as well
0: so I mean Sounds like with this little pinhole card, you're basically making probably the simplest camera yep. possible, and then you're just projecting the image on there.
2: Exactly. Very cool. Exactly. So instead of using a detector like you would if you were using a real camera, you're just mm-hmm. projecting it onto a piece of card or onto the ground or onto a
0: projector screen or something like that. So, to summarize, it's have protection. You will want to look at it directly, if not, look at it indirectly by making an image. And the beauty is for like a buck or two, anybody can make their own little solar camera, basically. Yep, absolutely. Out of a pinhole, uh card. Mm-hmm. That is cool. It now is Now, you playful. said, you started talking out saying, well, for the Boulder area, is there anything different that happens when you're actually within the uh, actuality of the total eclipse?
2: Yes, there is. So uh, the difference between the path of totality and uh, off of totality, like we are here in Boulder, is uh, during the time of totality, which unfortunately we won't have here in Colorado. Um, But if we were to, say, drive north to Wyoming, uh, there is a period of about two minutes during the peak of totality when um, you can actually remove your eye protection. And that's because the entire sun's surface is completely blocked out by the moon. So that very, very bright, strong light that comes from the sun's surface that causes the eye damage is actually completely shadowed. So we don't see any of that. And the beauty of that is that we can then see the, the, really fine wispy structure of the solar corona which is really that's the that's the money shot right there that's the the business the uh, that's what people become eclipse chasers for to see the solar corona, which is these long streaks that emanate from the sun's surface. And it's actually magnetic field that comes out of the sun and it traps hot gases. And the hot gases are what we see because magnetic fields are invisible. And so we use the hot gases as tracers to be able to see where the magnetic field is. So not only is it spectacular, it's also scientific. I mean, it gives us information
0: about the sun's corona. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Alejandro Soto. If you're just joining us, we were s- speaking with Dr. Claire Raftery from the National Solar Observatory. Well, so that's really cool that you're actually seeing this the corona from the sun during the totality of the eclipse. And have we using eclipses in the past or even currently? Have we learned scientifically interesting things about the sun this way? Absolutely. So the corona is uh,
2: it's the another word for crown. So it's this. A far-reaching structure that comes out from the edge of the sun. It's the sun's atmosphere, essentially. And it can tell us a huge amount of information about the sun. So the magnetic behaviour of the sun is basically the key to everything. Understanding the magnetic field is essential to really understanding anything on our local star. Um, and so... We have active regions and solar flares and coronal mass ejections, solar storms, are sometimes called, they all emanate from this part of the atmosphere. They're rooted in the solar surface, but they, they rise up through the corona. And so understanding those, like it, it not only is it scientifically interesting, it also has impacts on our understanding of how the sun impacts the earth. Geomagnetic storms are infamous for causing what we call space weather. Um, they can affect uh, radio communications, they can affect your GPS signal, there's a lot of everyday impacts that we deal with uh, when we have solar storms nothing to be afraid of or worried about these these happen all the time but understanding them as scientists help us predict them and that can help us um, make sure that we don't that damage is not caused here on the earth
0: so looking at this corona during a totality you can learn some great science about it but they only happen every 18 m- months and they often can only be seen from remote difficult uh, areas to get to so Have solar physicists like you worked out other ways to, uh, capture, um, the corona and to study it,
2: we have. So there is a scientific instrument called a, a coronagraph, and you can make your own coronagraph by going outside and putting your thumb over the sun and covering it. And that is really all a coronagraph is. It's a very fancy stop, a light stop, um, that that is placed in the path of a telescope that will stop the light from the sun's surface coming through the telescope. And that's similar to shading your eyes on a very bright day, so as you can see something faint. And um, if it's very 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 bright you may not be able to see something faint uh, outside so you shade your eyes from the sun and all of a sudden that becomes clearer the faint things become clearer and like if you're trying to read your cell phone outside for example then maybe sometimes the light there is not bright enough and so by using a coronagraph we basically create a permanent man-made eclipse and actually the National Solar Observatory is in the process of constructing what will be the most powerful um, solar telescope in the world in Hawaii at the moment and that is uh, one of the one of the important instruments on that is actually a, a coronagraph. So we'll have a permanent way of looking at the solar corona. Um, not twenty four hours a day because it's a ground based telescope. So at night time we won't be able to see the sun. But uh, all day during the day we'll be able to see the
0: sun's corona. Twelve hours a day, three sixty five, mm. roughly. Um, so that sounds awesome. But let's say I'm in the Colorado area, or I'm farther away from the path of the uh, the eclipse. Are there other ways for my that I can participate and watch what's going on?
2: Yes, uh, there'll be there'll be loads and loads of. Um Video streams. So I know that one of the biggest efforts is by NASA Edge, who are going to be streaming from multiple sites along the path of totality. Uh, the National Solar Observatory has a program called Citizen Kate that's placing sixty different telescopes along the path of totality um, in order to do a science experiment that will generate scientific data for the duration of the eclipse. And some of that data will be made public. Um, we're hoping to stream at least some of the sites live, and they'll be participating in the NASA Edge broadcast. Uh, We'll also be producing a 90-minute movie afterwards of all of this eclipse data. Um, And this is really exciting for us, sorry to go off on a tangent a little bit, but just to mention Citizen Kate, because it's very exciting from a scientific perspective because I mentioned earlier that we have coronagraphs um, and they're they're very effective for looking at the outer corona. But there's a little band right over the sun's surface that's really difficult to get good imagery. uh, And that's because when you put a light stop, when you put the coronagraph in the way, the edge of the coronagraph causes all kinds of weird aberrations and, and light effects. And that means that we can't really trust what we're seeing in that part of the atmosphere. So by, uh, by using the natural solar eclipse, the sun and the moon are far enough away from the Earth and far enough uh, sorry the sun and the moon are far enough away from each other and um, those light effects those weird aberrations are minimized and so that means that we can really trust what we see right around the edge of the sun so citizen kate uh, will have 60 telescopes starting um, in oregon going all the way to south carolina and the idea is that we'll be it, it's a bit like having a, a travelling observatory but the observatories are stationary and the eclipse will travel. Um, and we're, we're going to be able to see that rim very close to the surface in great detail. And normally during a solar eclipse you get maybe two minutes of data. Um, but during this eclipse we're hoping to get 90 minutes of data because we're going to chase it the whole way across the country. So that's going to give us some really unique uh, scientific information about those lowest layers of the, the solar corona.
0: And has this type of uh, sort of experiment been done before?
2: And uh, not that I'm aware of, I know that there are uh, there are a, a group coming out of HAO right here in in uh, Boulder as and well. HAO is the High Altitude the High Observatory. Altitude Observatory, and they're producing the Eclipse Mega Movie, which is going to be another great citizen science project that you can contribute to. And they're inviting people to take pictures with their cell phones and submit them to create what they're calling the Eclipse Mega Movie. So that this is going to be. Um, available for everybody to participate in whereas Citizen Kate is a group of predetermined volunteers in advance but we're really hoping that we'll be able to bring those two data sets together
0: after the eclipse. Well that's wonderful and I have to say I think it's exciting that even in this modern age where so much of science requires um, high-tech machinery and uh, advanced knowledge to really dig into that we're still doing such amazing things where non-scientists everywhere can participate and get involved and make a significant contribution because i get the impression that it's the the volume of this data that's most important it's the coverage from multiple locations that's most important so it's it's not one or two citizen scientists helping out but it's it's hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands that's the key to making this work. Absolutely. And one of the things that is most important about the sun is
2: seeing its dynamics, seeing how things change. And so we can't really see much change in only two minutes. So that's why we're really excited about having 90 minutes to see lots and lots of things evolve and change and grow and shrink over that hour and a
0: half period. And are you hoping to, to then repeat this type of citizen science experiment at future uh, solar eclipses? Uh,
2: I I think that's the plan. There's an eclipse coming up in 2024 that will run from Texas up into New England Um, and so that will cut through the the others the other uh, side of the United States um, and that will give us another I I don't actually don't know how long the period of totality is for that but that will give us another opportunity to repeat the experiment and maybe gather more data and in 2024 we'll be on our way back into solar maximum so the sun will more than likely be more active than it'll be during the eclipse this year
0: Now, so we're coming here near the end here, so just sort of wrap up. Um, If someone's listening and they're getting excited about this and they want to learn a little bit more, what sort of resources are out there for them to learn more about the upcoming eclipse and eclipses in general? Uh, There are
2: are tons and tons of resources. A quick Google search of Eclipse 2017 will give you all kinds of things, such as eclipse maps. It'll give you an idea of where you can go to go and see the eclipse. Um, The National Solar Observatory is actually has been hosting uh, monthly webcasts that's talking specifically about the eclipse. Um, We have them come out on the second Thursday of the month. They're on YouTube, or you can find them at www.nso.edu forward slash eclipse 2017. And those webcasts go into some of the detail of the science. So we talk about the fact that the sun's corona is made up of magnetic fields, and we talk about different scientific aspects. We also have a quick demonstration of... um, an activity that you can do if you're a teacher or an after-school provider that can get your kids excited about the eclipse. And then we have a guest scientist that comes in every month to talk about their research and how it pertains to the solar eclipse.
0: Well, that sounds wonderful. So thank you very much, Dr. Uh, Claire Raftery, for joining us. This has been wonderful to hear about. I look forward to seeing the uh, solar eclipse this summer. Thank you. Thank you, too. That was Dr. Clara Raftery from the National Solar Observatory speaking to us about the solar eclipse and the sun. If you want to learn more about all of this, just go to www.nso.edu forward slash eclipse2017. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by me, Alejandro Soto, and was engineered by Joel Parker.
1: Additional contributions by Beth Bennett and Susan Moran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the Latin Jazz Orchestra.
0: Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook
1: and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Alejandro Soto.